most of us have a piece of scholarly lives that we love. And being able to talk about that love in a way that opens the space up for other people is this extraordinary. It's an act of real generosity. I get that. But when you do it well, it brings a whole lot of people along on a journey with you. And it is a beginning of lots of great and delightful forms of engagement and impact. Welcome to the Pathway to Impact podcast series. My name is Sarah Dabra, Manager Business Development at UIN and your host for today. With a background in anthropology and a career spanning academia and industry, our guest, Professor Genevieve Bell, Director of the School of Cybernetics and the 3A Institute at the Australian National University, brings a unique perspective to the conversation. Genevieve shares her experiences and insights on the challenges and opportunities facing academia, the future of impactful research, and the importance of curiosity, community, and bravery in scholarly pursuits. Get ready for a thought-provoking discussion that will inspire and empower researchers at all stages of their career. We're very excited to have you here today, Genevieve, as you share your journey around impact and impactful research, and just looking forward to getting to know a bit more about the journey you have taken and what does impactful research or being an impactful academic mean to you? Is that even a term actually that you would associate with yourself? What does that mean for you as an academic? I think I probably don't think of myself as an academic, <laughs> which is always a bit of a challenge because I do actually sit inside a university these days. So look, it's probably helpful to give just a little bit of my background as in how do I come to be in this place doing this work? I am indeed the inaugural director of the School of Cybernetics. I have the dubious distinction of directing the first new school the Australian National University has started in at least a generation. Good news, bad news there. Good news is they haven't done it in a generation. Bad news is they haven't done it in a generation. <laughs> so there's a lot of kind of knowledge that people don't have or wish they did. So that makes for complexity. But I've had a complicated journey to get to this moment in time. So you're right. I hold a PhD in cultural anthropology with expertise in Native American history, feminist and queer theory. And um, that's from Stanford. I think in those days, if you'd asked me what I thought impactful research was, it had two principal characteristics, right? One was I was really concerned coming out of what had been quite heavy theory schools in anthropology that I wanted to write in a manner that made my work accessible. So I wanted to imagine the bar I held myself was that anything I wrote should be and could be read by the people about whom it was written. So in my instance, I wanted the descendants of the people who'd been to the school I studied to be able to read about their family and to see themselves in it and not have a barrier of intensely theoretical language. So there was always a kind of a, a struggle between me and my faculty and my supervisor about, did I write like a journalist and why was that bad? <laughs> Anyone could read it. I'm like, oh God, is that a problem? Oh, it is. Okay. Indirectly trying to create impact just by making what you're doing accessible in a way. For me, there was something about the point of creating new knowledge was that you were moving multiple conversations forward and it shouldn't just be inside your own sort of subfield. And so I think the way I thought about impact, but that was one piece of it, was how did we make the work accessible to people who weren't in our <laughs> little tiny kind of preoccupations? And they were quite small preoccupations in those days. But I think the second piece, uh, my mother was also an academic anthropologist and then worked outside of the universities. And she'd been very active and still is in the land rights and sovereignty movement here in Australia, in the self-determination, the women's movement, and also the environmental movement. And I've been raised with a very clear notion that there was a moral imperative to act and that you needed to work every day to make the world a better place, which sounds terribly corny. But my mom made pretty clear that you had an obligation to make the world a better place through your labor, more fair, more just, more equitable, more sustainable. 
And that was, yes, your intellectual labor, but it might be your time, your passion, your energy, your money, if you had it. And if it came down to it, laying your life on the line about the things that really mattered. And so for me, impact was about both those things, right? It was about making the work that you were doing accessible, but it was also about ensuring that the work you were doing sat inside a broader capacity for making change. I was at Stanford, <laughs> I had a PhD, I was on a tenure track job. And I met a man in a bar, which is not the way good stories should go about being an impact academic, <laughs> but I, I met a man in a bar in Palo Alto in the late 1990s, so in the middle of the dot-com insanity. And he asked me what I did. And I said, I was an anthropologist. He said, what's that? I said, I study people. He said, why? And I said, because they're interesting. And he said, what do you do with that? And I said, I'm an academic, basically. And he said, couldn't you do more? I remember thinking that was quite rude, actually. And I was just like, oh, I'm done with this conversation. And I didn't think much more of it until he called me at my house the next day. What he was asking of me was to say, look, you seem like an interesting person. I've looked up anthropology. I understand this is about people. I have people questions. Are you the person to answer them? I ended up having a series of conversations and he introduced me to a series of people around Silicon Valley, including the ones who would ultimately be my employees at Intel. And the Intel people were also weird. And it was a strange set of conversations. And I couldn't work out what a semiconductor manufacturing company would possibly want with a feminist, unreconstructed kind of neo-Marxist at the time, anthropologist. And I told them as much when they interviewed me, because I assumed that would mean they would never talk to me again. <laughs> but to their credit, they kept calling me. And every time they'd call me and say, no, look, we're doing these things we think you'd find interesting. And they'd unfold a bit more of the kind of the problem that they had. And each time that unfolded a bit more, my intellectual curiosity was like, wait, you're making these little tiny chips, but these little tiny chips seem to add up to the building blocks of the world that I live in and the world that we will all live in moving forward. And I remember having this moment where I woke up in the middle of the night and I thought, oh, shit, if I really have a moral obligation to make the world a better place, it can't just be by talking to people who are like me. It has to be by working out how to take what I know how to do and do it somewhere else. Mm. And so I called Intel and I said, when can I start? And they said, how about next week? And so I turned up on the first day of my new job in a place where I literally knew no one and I didn't understand anything anyone was saying. I had to completely remap everything I knew about how to do research, talk about research, be impactful, have engagement. And it had to start with understanding the place I found myself yeah. and of making sense of what were the coins of the realm there in that sense. How did they exchange information? They used to keep saying to me very patiently, we're not readers. What they meant was we don't read academic papers out loud to each other because that's what I kept insisting on doing to them. So it became a how do you learn to think about your work as having to be meaningful and make sense to people who aren't in my world, weren't trained inside my field of expertise. It aligns with what you were saying before as well about with your PhD and then the writing, trying to make that accessible and trying to make them understand your way of thinking about things. I'm curious also just about their perspective, because it sounds like they could already see the potential of bringing in someone with your background. They were much clearer about why I would be valuable to them than they than I was ever clear about my value. So a lot of the telcos in Europe were starting to work out at that point that consumer behavior was not unfolding the way it had for the previous 50 years and that there was this rapid expansion in uptake of technology. And in a lot of those companies, there was a sense of if we could understand what consumers both were doing and what they might want to do, that those insights could shape not just marketing messages, but the underlying pieces of technology that people were starting to build and innovate. You asked, in companies that are making microprocessors, from the day you decide we need to make the next generation of technology to the day it rolls out of the factory, it's 10 years, give or take a little bit. And that means you actually have to have some sense of what 
people are going to be doing with the devices your chips are powering a decade out. And it turns out that anthropologists, sociologists, psychologists, demographers, a few other categories of people were actually quite good at thinking about what people might want to do over protracted periods of time. Quick secret, turns out it's because what people really want to do doesn't change very much. <laughs> yes, you study the history of people, you can predict the future directions. And for companies like Intel and HP and Xerox and Nokia and British Telecom, social scientists were just another kind of person who could make sense of the world and create innovative possibilities. And we found it a little different. We did different kinds of research, but in lots of the R&D labs in the late 90s, there was a sense of, this is just another kind of way of making sense of things and generating new ideas. And it was a more expansive world then in some ways than it is mm. now. Yeah. And then you stayed at Intel for a number of years and then transitioned back to academia in a way. What, what sparked the change again? I had been at Intel nearly 20 years and I'd had a couple of very different roles. And the last role I'd been in, I'd basically become the chief foresight officer. And I loved that on the one hand, it was a really interesting piece of the job, but I also got to this point where I was creating strategy for other people to decide if they wanted to embrace it or not. And I discovered that I actually like to not just think about what makes things tick, but make new things. <laughs> and the president of the Australian National University called me up and told me what he wanted was someone who would bring the entrepreneurial kind of innovations in and try and do something new inside the university. And I thought back to the, what's the moral obligation here? What's the world I am making through my labor? And after 20 years in Silicon Valley, one of the things I was very clear about was that we were indeed building the future and that the next piece of the future we were building, which at that point was big data and AI, required a very different sort of practice mm -hmm. than existed in my colleagues. And so when I came home with a commitment to myself and my new boss, that I would attempt <laughs> to build a new branch of engineering to take AI safely, responsibly, and sustainably to scale. So for me, it was about how did you do critical thinking and critical doing inside an organization? And then I think about impact completely differently. I still believe you should write in a way that is accessible and engaging to people and they can pick it up and either see themselves in it or want to take the ideas forward. But also, as we've built up this new school, I try to think about it like it's an estuary. So like that place where fresh water meets salt water mm. and where you have land and sea, but tides and lots of movement and it's incredibly generative. And I wanted to think about how did we build a school where it wasn't just that people came and ideas came, it was that people flowed through and ideas flowed through and students flowed through. And part of what it meant to be impactful wasn't just about the research that you did, it was about the student cohorts that you graduated, the conversations that you sparked, the people that you impacted, the people that spent time with you and the places that you went. And for me, that whole piece of it felt like it's what we should be doing. Yeah. I really like that, that analogy because sometimes we can think really as a pathway. So you do something, you research, and then you publish that research, and then maybe there's an impact. But it sounds like the way you describe it, there are all these different touch points and maybe pathways that you're taking sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, where you can be creating these connections and this impact on the external world. Yeah. And look, Sarah, I'm incredibly cognizant of the fact that the point at which I joined the tech sector it's a very different world than it is now. And I was really lucky in terms of the people that were my sponsors and my mentors and the choices yeah. that I made and that it's let me in a position now where I get to make very different choices than I would if I were a young academic or a young researcher starting up. Maybe on that, there's two elements to my question. 
One is what could academics or researchers themselves potentially be doing starting from that early stage through to becoming more more senior? What can they be doing to become more impactful or not necessarily follow this very traditional pathway of academia? But also what can universities be doing to support these academics and not restrict them and have experiences where you're considered you take the worst possible path if you leave academia? Yeah, black sheep of the family. Look, I think there's a couple of pieces to the puzzle, right? Some of them are structural inside universities. So certainly in Australia, we've started the conversation about how do we imagine a broader portfolio of outputs of our research so that it is not simply contained by whatever is appropriate in your field. Research papers, journal articles, peer-reviewed papers, that's a form of outputs. And they're really important, right? It's one of the ways we talk to our peers in our own communities. But there's a broader set of other ways we communicate our work in some of the humanities sections, whether it's through creative works, staging exhibitions, podcasts, novels, TED Talks, whether it's about our presence in social media, whether it's about writing reports for government. Now, the problem there is, of course, at least in Australia, the formulation is research outputs and non-traditional research outputs immediately marking this other body as otherness. So for me, it's more about how do we basically say, look, there's always going to be a range of outputs and we should be actively working on ensuring we have, I think, a diversity of those. So if you're going to pursue that, however, you need to make sure that everything from promotions committees to job descriptions, to mentoring conversations, to the ways we recognize, reward, and celebrate isn't just about, here's the latest research grant I got, and here's the thing in the peer-reviewed journal. Mm -hmm. I don't want to diminish those, but I do want to suggest that we also need to index in a positive way on a bunch of other kinds of activities. I think it comes down to what are the stories we tell ourselves about our work and the stories about things that we value and what we valorize is partly about how we create room for a wider range of impactful activities and a wider range of thinking about what those activities look like. And then there's a bunch of like small little things you can do. So mm-hmm. certainly in my school, we work on making sure that people have access to being media trained. So you know what to happen if you actually want to talk about your stuff publicly. What looks good there? Mm-hmm. How do you stand on a camera and make that look not like a ransom? What are the skills we need to be successful in some of these other domains where many academic careers are an apprenticeship in a very narrow band of activities. And so how we do a better job of apprenticing that broader band of activities for me feels like both a practical and also a a piece of the imagination work you need to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. There's a question from the audience and I'm gonna try to summarize it. How can we involve industry to make use of this excellent research and these excellent skills that exist within the university sector and create this knowledge exchange in a way throughout an academic career? I sometimes see us doing a disservice on the university side is not spending the time to understand what makes various parts of industry and commercial organizations tick Mm -hmm. and of not being attuned to some of the ways both they function and how they are engaged in sense making. It was always an interesting thing for me to be that translation person on the industry side. And I think what it taught me was how to be better at paying attention to what is an organization's strategic impulses? What are the things it's interested in? Not as a capitulation to it, but as a framing how to engage in a slightly better way. And then I think you have to be attuned to the fact that one of the biggest differences is about time scales. So when I first came back to Australia and I came to the universities, a colleague of mine said to me, I think you're going to have a problem with time. I'm like, in what 
what sense? <laughs> it's like at university, short term is this academic year. Medium term is the next two to five years. Long term is 10 years. And I looked at him with this kind of like mild horror. Like, oh God, like where I come from short term is maybe a quarter. Mm. Medium term is 18 months. Long term is a plan someone else is talking about and everything else is urgent. And he just yeah. laughed at me. And I realized one of the places we end up with this impedance mismatch of working out how to partner better with both government and industry is that we can sometimes align on the research, but we're not doing as good a job as we ought to about the fact that there are completely different timescales and time horizons and how you manage things where you've got multiple time constants is complicated. I think it's actually about understanding that not all industries are the same knowing a little bit about the rhythms and routines inside those industries. We actually have to invest in energy in getting to know them and working out what makes them tick. In some ways, the same way of knowing if you're dealing between North America, Northern and Southern Hemisphere, you have to work out that the summer holidays happen in two different periods. Yeah. Like, well, it's just that simple. I'm not an anthropologist, but from an anthropological perspective, in the end, it is all about people, right? It's about relationships and understanding what they're looking for, what you can do together, and using that to build the collaborations. Absolutely. Genevieve, you talked a bit around communication. When we're thinking as an academic, is there any way to plan for the impact you would like to have? Or is it more than it happens and it's more about having these kind of underlying motivations that then can lead to impact? I tend to think about impact for me. It sits in that space about how do you talk about stuff? How do you energize people and bring people along on the journey of it? And I tend to there remember that different audiences respond differently. I have just finished writing a report. And because it's a report for government, it has this really particular formulation. It has a certain number of words, certain kind of language. But then that meant this afternoon I had to go brief the prime minister on this paper that we had written. And how I briefed him about the paper <laughs> was not reading the paper out loud to him. It was giving him context for making sense of the paper. And so there's a little bit there. And I know it, it sounds glib, but when I'm planning for impact, I'm actually thinking about what are the couple of different ways I'm going to talk about this, how I might talk about it to my colleagues who are near to me in a disciplinary sense how I might talk about it to my colleagues who are further away from me in a disciplinary sense, mm -hmm. how I might talk about it to people outside of the university, how I might talk to people who I know I need to drive to action tomorrow, <laughs> or how I'm going to invite people into that conversation. And these days for me, my own personal practice is usually a couple of things. I'm looking for at least one really good story, a story that either it's a bit of a surprise, it has high detail to it or something prickly around the edges in a good way what's the thing that's going to make people stop to listen to you so what's the kind of the opening game giving speeches and presentations and keynotes I've often found there the images behind my head are as important as the words that come out of my mouth so I'm also thinking about what's the visual grammar that I plan to use in all of this and how am I thinking about that I'm routinely trying to think through how do I take this really complicated thing and not make it simple, but render it as legible as I can. Different forms of engagement and impact activities have own time constants, if you want to think about it that way. Yeah. Although this performance may not lead you to believe this, and probably not the last time we saw each other either, I am an introvert and I'm painfully shy. And 20 years in industry taught me how to do this, because if I wasn't doing this, they weren't listening. Why would you listen to an anthropologist <laughs> had 60,000 engineers? You're weird. So you're going to have to be more interesting than that. <laughs> and so I've learned to be more interesting than that. 
but that comes at a cost, right? There's a little bit of curating my own energy levels and realizing that writing, which I love, is a very different mental drain than speaking mm -hmm. and the code switching between them and different audiences. Yeah. That's really interesting. I'm also an introvert, so I know the feeling of having to, to extrovert constantly. But I think you tell a really nice story and it's very engaging. And so that it's intentional, I think, is also interesting and useful for people to learn about because that really shows that this maybe image of an academic sitting in the ivory tower and not talking to anyone can easily be broken with different interventions and focus on how can I communicate yeah. the amazing work that I'm doing Part of what made me successful at Intel was that I'd been taught at Stanford. So when I was finishing my PhD, Stanford had money to ensure that all of their graduates had teacher training. There was a real investment in making sure we all knew how to frame a curriculum, stand up in a classroom, think about pedagogy, know how to engage a classroom, know how to take a complicated material and run it through a class. Those all turned out to be incredibly useful skills when I got to industry, yeah. <laughs> where I was having to stand up in front of a bunch of people and engage them with material that they're like, I didn't do the homework. <laughs> there were a bunch of places where the things that had made me a quote unquote good academic back when I was much younger turned out to be useful coming to industry, right? They turned out to be places and skills that actually were unexpectedly helpful in working out how to engage in an industrial context. Yeah. But yeah, knowing as you engage in projects that there's usually a reason you started it, right? There's Almost inevitably, when you talk to most people, the reason you're doing whatever you are currently doing is because there's something in it you cannot let go of. Like it's just worrying away at you in a kind of in a nice way, but there's a bit of a, there's this thing and I want to keep talking about it. And being able to articulate what the compulsion is and being able to convey why that compulsion mm -hmm. is fabulous. Most of us have a piece of our scholarly lives that we love. Yeah. And being able to talk about that love in a way that opens the space up for other people is this extraordinary. It's an act of real generosity. I get that. But when you do it well, it brings a whole lot of people along on a journey with you that is lovely. And it is a beginning of lots of really great and delightful forms of engagement and impact. Yeah, definitely. It aligns with the intrinsic motivations behind someone pursuing a more of an academic career is to apply research and practice, to have impact on society, to be able to share what you're doing with the world. And I also to find, even though maybe sometimes we don't think about it, but academics are inherently somewhat entrepreneurial because you have to come up with ideas, you have to get funding, you have to pursue that, bring people along with you. Genevieve, we reflected a bit on the past and the journey, and as you focus also on looking at trends in the future, I'd like to ask you a bit around how do you see the future of academia and impactful research? Do you see any maybe big changes happening or is it more like a slow burn to getting more of that out of? Yeah. I think there are three threads that are unraveling at the moment that aren't necessarily related to each other, but will all impact us. So I think number one is the rearrangement of resources such that universities aren't the only people anymore who are the custodians of doing primary and foundational research. That's what universities did. It's certainly been the case in the last 20 years in multiple fields, that there is more money sitting in industry to do advanced research, not just development, and getting universities to start orienting to the fact that the economic landscape and the business landscape is different than it was 20 years ago, I think is an existential threat for us. So there's a little bit there of saying, we no longer have the only walk 
And I hate that language. Lots of people now can fund certain kinds of research. So what does that mean? What makes us special as a sector? So I think there's that thread and it's going to continue to unravel. And it is clearly playing out right now in two very different places. One around energy, sustainability, battery technology. So, you know, when you've got companies for better or worse, how we feel about this, but Elon Musk's battery technology conversations are far ahead of what's happening in a lot of universities. And he's brought up a lot of the really good research there. And the flip side of that would be what's happening with machine learning, generative AI, large language models, that whole space where the sheer cost of doing that makes it very hard for universities to think how they want to engage in that Mm -hmm. space. So I think there's a rearrangement of where resources sit that is something we need to contend with. Likewise, certainly in Australia, we are going through a multi-generational shift in how many people have undergraduate degrees versus what was true 40 and 50 years ago. And the sheer volume of people coming through our institutions changes what it means to think about the value of an education, the value of a degree, and how those degrees are made sense of. And I don't think those are bad things, but I think we haven't rethought ourselves (laughs) as a result of what that means, right? And what it certainly meant in my home country is the development of some pretty complicated business models that aren't always entirely healthy and about the use of student fees to pay for research, which creates an unholy kind of cycle of needing students to fund research, but not necessarily taking care and curating those students' lives as well as we would. Anyway, that's a cycle that I feel needs some critical attention. And then I've been thinking about chat GPT a lot recently and that whole space. For me, one of the startling pieces of that is both how seductive it is as an experience. If all of you have not yet played with chat GPT, you are to get off this call and go through. <laughs> if only because we need to understand what that's going to do in all of our spaces. Not because I actually think what chat GPT currently produces is worthy scholarship per se, but because in a couple of different areas, its capacity to normalize a certain kind of tonality to flatten a certain kind of discursive affect that's big words what i mean is chat gpt has a really particular tone and that particular tone is going to become endemic (laughs) we're going to be stuck with it and there's something really important to remember that those of us who aren't being algorithm algorithmated i don't know (laughs) not automated algorithmated who are being algorithmated are going to sound very different than everything else And so whilst I can completely see where this next wave of automation slash algorithmation is happening, and I can see the early signs of where generative AI is going to end up in many of our disciplinary practices and many of our sectors, I also suspect what it will do is perversely create a certain kind of economy around those that don't sound like it. So if you're willing to be sufficiently different that you don't look like all of that, my suspicion is there will continue to be an interesting space for those of us who are willing to not sound like everyone else. And I think academics have a good propensity to not need to be normalised in quite that way. I worry about what that means, again, in terms of progressions and advancement in careers and what it means Mm -hmm. for notions about what scholarly production looks like. I think it's also the case much the same way that things like Google changed all of our research habits yeah. <laughs> and all the things that underpinned it. 
like how grateful were we when you suddenly didn't have to get to every library in the world to get to the stuff <laughs> exactly. you wanted. We don't think about it anymore because it's been 30 years, but Google profoundly remapped all the way we did a lot of research for most of us in some way. This is going to be the next one of those. And imagining that it's not necessarily a threat and that, in fact, a whole lot of the skills that make us good researchers are going to make us excellent prompt engineers because it turns out a lot of people at shithouses, this would be a technical term, are really bad at writing prompts because they don't know how to think about a question. Yeah. <laughs> because uh, for me, the optimistic space is there. It'll be interesting. Definitely. But those are three big ones there. I think there's one about economics and research, about who can afford it, who can fund it, and what it means to think about in that. I think there's one about what are the business models that underpin universities and how do we want to think about those in the 21st century and how do we want to think about what it means to imagine research that is not just tied up in universities and education, not just being degrees. I think there's a lot of kind of hard conversations we'll need to have about our core assets. Mm -hmm. And then I think one about how do we want to both lean in and be critical of the consequences of a world of generative AI and algorithmation. I think I just made up that word. Uh, maybe you have, but I like it. It works. <laughs> I can see that on the one hand, exciting and a lot of change needed, but at the same time, maybe being slightly wary of how much to change and where to change. Maybe building on that as a, one of the final questions, also coming from the audience, in light of these four types of trends that you've just described and following up on what we've been talking about around impactful research and impact, what would you recommend to, let's say, PhD students or early career researchers for starting an impact journey? Something that has nothing to do with your work. I actually think it's about finding a group of people you want to be in conversation with, whether they are your immediate peers, whether they are people that you've come through a program with, whether they're the conversations you want to be in. Regardless of your discipline or your field, I'm always struck by the way how we narrate our academic journeys as solo. And I think for me, one of the loveliest things about my time in industry was I would never had to be alone in my research. And there were always a whole other group of people that I was engaged with that pushed me, that challenged me, that weren't necessarily in my projects or in my field or in the thing I was working on. But there was always a group of people who were invested in pushing the conversation forward. Whilst I find a certain kind of state of grace <laughs> in writing and in the work, I also think that there's a piece about needing to have a, a community of people, not necessarily who share your practice or your discipline, but who are interesting to you and interested in you and you are interested in them. I think there's a piece about how we maintain intellectual curiosity for as long as we possibly can. There's a tendency to want to become experts in things and to have that expertise be, because it's so hard fought in one, <laughs> getting a PhD is such a lot of work. You want to say, oh my God, I have this thing and now I am an expert. Hmm. And of course you are. But there's also a bit about how do we maintain curiosity and things beyond that expertise so that we continue to be learning and engaged. And then in terms of picking projects, oh Jesus, sometimes I'm endlessly preoccupied with things where five years from now, someone's going to go, that stuff you were working on, that's really interesting. And I've already moved on. So part of it is also how do you trust your own instincts about the things you find are interesting and not let fashion dissuade you where it doesn't have to. And being able to find multiple ways to talk about the things you're interested in so you can convince other people that they're interesting too. But I have, over the arc of my career, been anywhere between five to 10 years ahead of where everyone else was going. And as a result, I have just looked like a nutter. I mean, I probably am one, but I've looked very weird. <laughs> standing over going, I'm interested in this. And everyone's like, what the hell is she talking about? And about 10 years later, someone goes, oh, 
I think there's a little bit about being brave in your scholarship mm -hmm. too. And being willing to say, look, I find this thing interesting. And yes, I'm going to have to justify it in some ways, but I shouldn't let the act of having to justify it dissuade me from thinking that it's interesting. I don't know if that's helpful. I'm sorry, that isn't helpful either. I was like, that's not a helpful answer. And I don't know how to answer the question other than to say, I think it's find things that interest you, find people that you want to talk to who are interested in you and make sure you stay curious and also brave. And then because Sarah and I are both introverts, that shit takes work. So make sure you also know <laughs> how to look after yourself. I should stop swearing. Make sure you know how to look after yourself. So, you know, whether that means occasionally you need to eat chocolate and watch bad television or buy shoes on eBay, whatever the thing is. <laughs> Curl away with a book. All of it works. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> no, I think that's good advice. And it brings together some of the different uh, elements we've touched upon, which is the, the people element, the communication, and I really liked what you said about team. If we bring it back to impact, if you're focused on creating impact, the one way of doing that is to impact others and support others and help them also along their journey. So I think that's a really important element to bring in. Yeah, and I think remembering that your impact will feel and be different over time. Like the first blush of it won't necessarily be what it is three years later. There are lots of ways of thinking about impact there's lots of ways of experiencing it happening too and of having it be successful or not and so there is also for me a little bit about how do you also work through what you learn from and constantly iterating for yourself okay so that didn't work what am I going to do different next time <laughs> and less beating yourself up about it and more okay what are the lessons I learned now am I going to implement them yes reflection <laughs> indeed thank you for listening to today's discussion Follow UIAN on LinkedIn, and if you're enjoying our podcasts, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review in your podcast platform of choice to help other people find this content too.